It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Just watching a tree creeper scurrying up an ash tree in little woodland beside the river Usk here. And on the water, three male goosanders, large, beautiful fish-eating ducks, are just drifting downstream. And here's a bit of a song of the Usk. It's early December. Cold, super cold. And a recent storm, Storm Arwen, has flogged the leaves from the trees so everything looks stark and wintry. My name is Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. And as the countryside shuts down for winter, we're beginning to shut down for 2021. And this is the very last episode, episode 18, of our Histories and Mysteries season. It's been quite a long season, but there's been so many brilliant tales to tell. But this episode 18 is a very good way to finish this fantastic season. A proper history and mystery. Last week, on a beautiful golden day, I headed down to the Somerset Levels and Glastonbury Tour to meet with historian Amy Jeffs, who's written a fascinating book called Storylander, a retelling of the ancient myths of the creation of Britain, a spellbinding collection of stories that really dig into the mythological foundations of Britain, England, Wales and Scotland and Ireland. So listen on for some great tales. Amy's book, Storyland, published by Quercus, is in the shops now and I can guarantee an absolutely brilliant read. So let's head to the Somerset Levels now and hear directly from Amy. Plus also some entertaining interjections from her five-month-old daughter, Rosa May. So we're deep in the Avalon marshes. Amy, how lovely to meet you. Lovely and, to uh, meet you too, Fergus. And thank you for coming out into the perfectly mysterious world to talk about your perfectly mysterious book. Yes, what an adventure. Um, by 
enjoyed your book. I finished it last night um, in the pub, and I was sort of overwhelmed by all the just the amazing number of stories. What what's the book about? I mean, I got a, lots of different impressions. A sort of creation myth of Britain, mm-hmm. but. Explain a bit more. Maybe the simplest way of putting it is that it's a, a history of Britain through medieval eyes. So there is no one medieval text that I've retold uh, fully in this book. I've sort of it's a patchwork of of stories, uh, retellings of real medieval myths and legends about Britain's early history, and it starts in Africa with giants quarrying yeah. the stones that will become Stonehenge, and it ends with the Norman conquest of England. So, lots of things struck me. One was you've done an incredible amount of research into loads and loads of old texts and old chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you find all these? And where, are they sort of all in the British Library or do you have to go and hunt? <laughs> so much is in the British Library and wonderfully so much now digitised uh, thanks to the work of the curators there. Um, one of the uh, main... Down here. Yeah. Oh, oh. There's a Neolithic track down Neolithic here, which I quite track, like to track, which seems, see. seems really yeah. appropriate, because your book starts in some pre... <laughs> Pre-history. Pre, or even there's a sort of pre, pre-history. Well, it's a completely different conception of history, isn't it? It's a biblical kind of history as yeah. opposed to the way we, we organise time. Um, yeah, so, um, so you were talking sort of, sort of about your sources. I mean. Yeah, so one of the primary sources, or maybe the source that it all began with, is uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which was written around 1136. Uh, and it was written with a Norman audience in mind, and it tells a story of, of uh, how Britain was founded, um, and it goes all the way up to uh, the arrival of the Saxons, who will become the English. And so it has. It starts with this empty island called Albion. Well, it's almost empty. It's, it's inhabited by giants, um, and a character called Brutus, way off in the Mediterranean, who is a Trojan. He's been. He's the great grandson of Aeneas from the story of of Troy uh, and the fall of Troy. And he uh, and he's been exiled for accidentally killing his father in a hunting accident. And uh, and as he's travelling the Mediterranean looking for somewhere to make into a new home. He picks up various other uh, refugee Trojans that have kind of scattered after the fall of Troy. And um, they, uh, they come across a, an island, an empty island with a, in the Mediterranean, this isn't Albion, with an uh, abandoned temple to the goddess Diana. And he makes a sacrifice at her altar. And she appears to him in his sleep and says, I know where you will make a homeland. It's in an you go to the Western Ocean, beyond Gaul, you'll find an island uninhabited but for a few giants. There you will build a new Troy and found a race of kings that will rule the whole round earth. And so he sets off with his Trojan followers and they come to Albion, this island in the Western Ocean, and uh, conquer the giants. The leader of the giants is called Gog Magog and he's a really interesting character and uh, and then they Brutus builds a new Troy and renames the island Britain after himself and that that text was copied and recopied in the Middle Ages and really was the the dominant history of Britain right up until the mid 16th century really? and that's really what you'd have learned if you had any kind of education at all you'd have learned of Brutus and Diana and Gog Magog and all those other stories that yes. sort of woven in that you weave the idea that people believed these 
incredible. I mean, obviously, we've got the modern experience of modern science and modern history, but they truly believed those things. Sure, because uh, you know, prophecies and giants are in the Bible, Oh, okay. and, and, and this is in this deep Old Testament past. Oh, we're just going on to this Neolithic sweet yeah, track, which is very exciting. Um, I think we're the first down here today just because of the amount of wildlife that's scattering in front yeah. of us. This is really wonderful. There's loads of thrushes yeah. and things. Blackbirds. Black uh, when I was pregnant, I kept waking up at four in the morning, which I think is quite normal in late pregnancy, and hearing the song of the blackbird because it was, it was in May. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and thinking you know, it would be the first song of the dawn chorus, and it was such a lovely thing to lie awake listening to. And I thought, oh, maybe we'll call our child you know, after the blackbird or the thrush. You know? So I looked up the Latin name, which is Turdus. <laughs> Turdus. Yeah, Merila isn't so bad, but Turdus no. is... Uh... Turdus really wouldn't yeah. be appropriate. For... Yeah. But once yeah. you do have a baby, you realise that Turdus is actually the best name for them. <laughs> um, yeah. Anywho. Fair enough, yes. I've been down that route. Um, uh, so what was I we were talking yeah, about? Talking about um, the, uh, yeah, about people believing these stories. Yes, yeah. So um, it says in Genesis that... Uh, the fallen angels visited human women and from them were born the men of renown and also the sort of the giants or the great great men that walk upon the earth so there's a sort of sense that heroes and monsters are somehow the progeny of the fallen angels and human women and that's a theme that runs through the book and likewise prophecy like by characters such as merlin and yes, uh, diana of your story, of the yes. story of, of England. I think they are, Britain. they're morally ambiguous, these prophecies, because, you know, Merlin himself is is the son of an incubus, uh, a sort of demon who uh, copulates with a nun. And so it's, and in some sort of versions of the tale, that's because, you know, the, de- the, <laughs> the demonic legion has met and decided they want to, to create a human that will that will undo Christ's work on earth. I see. And that's why Merlin, they send somebody to, uh, to sort of engender Merlin. Merlin it does backfire. I think the nun, it, they, didn't, they underestimated the nun um, in, in bringing him up well. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, these things are possible, <laughs> I suppose. Prophecies and giants and magic and miracles. It's not, it's, um, it's not, how we, it's not magic in the way we, we understand it. The storyland, how you've written it, is, is your own retelling of these stories. Mm-hmm. And you're quite open about adding some detail here and there <laughs> to, um, to kind of make this, I guess, to flesh out the story and to make it more logical. Or yes, is it so just to create the, the atmosphere? Well, some, some medieval texts are very... Um, pay a lot of attention to characters' emotions and others don't. Others have this very terse, kind of this happened, then this happened and you think, yeah. why? And, and one of those was the, the example I mentioned earlier of the giants in Africa uh, bringing the, st- the stones that will become Stonehenge to Ireland where they are first erected. And, uh, and that's, just, that's just mentioned in Geoffrey of Monmouth. He says... Uh, well, it's the character of Merlin talking, and he, they're, they're looking for a monument to erect in, in memory of some massacred British nobles. And he says, "I know of one. It stands in Ireland. It's called the Giant's Dance, and it was brought there uh, before the flood, I believe." He says, um, "By from Africa by giants because of its the stone's healing virtues." And uh, 
and it's it's very it's just almost passed over this this story of these giants coming from Africa with the stones and that really intrigued me so that's the first story in the text and it's a it's kind of using that idea as a springboard um, but I wanted to imagine these great beings in a in not the Africa we know now but in the medieval European conception of Africa as being in a sort of place of climatic extremes where uh, that would affect the physi- physiology of the beings that lived there. So in things like medieval... We can, keep, um, so we can go deeper into this sure. tangled world. Amazing. It's a really calm day, isn't it? Beautiful sunshine. I keep forgetting to look around. I'm just sort of walking in a... Because I'm tr- concentrating so hard on well, what I'm saying. Of, um, of dream walking through this... Um, just give um, listeners a picture of where we are. We're sort of on a... We are on the sweet track, which we have visited before on a podcast. I'm sure it's grass snakes, but this is... It's a tangled world of um, alders and oaks and ferns. Goat willow. Goat willow, yeah. So there's a whole... Do you know more of the trees here? Lots of grasses. You can tell me more of Sedges. I'm trying to work out what we're standing under. It's so quiet. And there's just some very very little oaks, little gnarly oaks and birches. Everything's a bit stunted and a bit sort yeah. of scrubby here, but it feels really full of and life. That's a very high um, sort of bracken in that really um, fiery tones. Yes, it's definitely, we're just at the sort of gateway of winter, really. Were you spending just hours and hours and hours reading, translating? You know, the, many of these sources are not unknown to the scholarly community and so yeah I'm enormously grateful to the <laughs> to the scholars the giants who, have gone before. yes and I think you know sometimes going back to the original language is a really exciting way of doing it I think especially with the Wayland legend there's that's that's a that's the Wayland smithy Wayland smithy the, the legendary goldsmith you know that's uh, based on an old Norse poem and also the amazing Frank's casket at the British Museum, which is well, I've carved heard from Walesbone. Um, and yeah. that's that's got stories carved into the. Yeah. Is it relief on the side of it or what? Yes. Yeah. It's got it's, each panel is carved with a different story, and the story of Wayland. It shows this smith who has been hamstrung and imprisoned on an island by an evil king. He's offering a drugged draught to the king's daughter Beardahild, uh, and at the same time he's holding the head of her younger brother in his tongs and the body of the brother and his twin is that they are under the he murders under the, those yeah, two murdered them, yeah. and they're underneath the table um and this this scene of Beardahild reaching for the vest the cup and also actually behind her as well is Wayland then constructing um catching the island's birds to construct wings with which he'll fly away so that scene is is next to the scene of the three kings and the adoration of the magi and it's such an interesting just a chiff chaff scene that's unbelievable at this time of year sorry to interrupt you <laughs> just sort of incidentally yes no, um, lovely reason to be interrupted well that should be it should be in africa that bird Chiff chaff in Africa. Oh, anyway, Africa. sorry, um, um, I, I, I will yeah. do that from time to well, time. So this this box, I would urge anyone listening, if, if you can get to London and see it in in the gallery in the medieval galleries at the British Museum, then do, um, because you've got these these um, sort of pre-Christian stories 
juxtaposed with Christian ones, so to have the story of Wayland and, yes. the, and the adoration of the Magi. Let's head down here. Each other. It opens up all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, what was the meaning of this box and what was... It's just, it's, it's curious, isn't it? And there's like... There's a story of rape and murder. Well, I was just saying, there's a lot story of story. Of, there's a lot of rape and murder yeah. in your tales, and um, yeah, it was, it was quite a, a sensitive. Um, you know, I, I felt I felt quite cautious about approaching those stories. I think. Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, I, I was interested uh, in the um, way where you were deciphering some of these. Some of these big stories of dealing with dealing with dragons or dealing with some other may, some other sort of really big mysterious mysterious horrible threat, and actually it being a reflection of the real world threats of in, invasion. I think it was that you were mm. talking about. Um, yes. That the the Britons and the, the Britons. face from the Saxons. Yes, and from the Romans. Yeah, there's a, the story of the red and white dragons buried in Dinas Emrys in Snowdonia. Uh, they are they are interpreted by the child Merlin as being so the red dragon is uh, the British race and it's being attacked by the white dragon and uh, the white dragon represents the Saxons and I think it's really an insight into the way in which um, the medieval people viewed the natural world as something that was full of meaning and full of allegory. And of course we think of giants as, not giants, sorry, dragons, as, uh, as fantastical. I don't think that's the case in the medieval mind, you know, the, the sort of sliding scale of terrifying large animal to devil is, uh, is something that can, be, that can be made manifest in the real world. Do you think they came across fossils and that just... Sure, well, actually, that's interesting you say that because in... So there was a kind of prequel written to the story of Brutus and the giants of Albion because um, it was saying... You know, obviously, people were saying, why, why, where did the giants come from then? So a bit later, uh, a text called Des Grands Géants the, of the Great Giants was written that, uh, that explained that um, 30 Syrian princesses had been banished for plotting to kill their husbands and overthrow their royal father. Oh, I remember that story, yes. yes and yeah, they, uh, that was an early one, wasn't and it? And they, they go to... They uh, end up washing up on the shores of Not-Yet-Albion. The eldest of them is called Albina. She gives it her name. And that's how Albion gets its name. And they end up... I don't want to give away the full intrigue of no the story, spoilers. but they, yeah. they, they do end up um, uh, giving birth to the race of giants. Um, and to find out exactly how, you may read the book, but uh, that's uh, the, the, at the end of this poem, I think there's this fascinating detail, it says, and this is why farmers tilling the soil will sometimes find yes, shoulder blades yeah. the size of shields. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's, there's not much like that in medieval texts, really, but that's a, a really exciting uh, insight into how they might have interpreted things like the discovery of dinosaur bones. Yes, I mean, I've been, I've, we've just been in Whitby, and of course the story there is that St Hilda of Whitby turned the snakes to stone, and that accounts for the ammonites found on the beach and in the rocks locally, yeah. and they're these coiled up snakes. Um, it's a totally plausible <laughs> explanation if you're okay with miracles. It sounds from what you were writing that 
that this was used to bolster real-life king's claims. Yeah, Edward the... Uh, well, actually, it's kind of relevant to being in, in this neck of the woods. How are we going to do this? Get across there. Glastonbury is uh, the site of Avalon, which is... Or traditionally, you know, that's it's been associated with this place, Avalon, where... Um, Arthur is said to have been taken to uh, after being injured in this kind of last battle, and um, and that is discussed in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which I've talked about loads. Um, and the, there was a, a a strong belief among the Britons that this this Arthur figure would deliver them from Saxon oppression, and. It wasn't very convenient for the English kings, to say the least. And uh, in 1191, the monks at Glastonbury Abbey exhumed two bodies from the graveyard. And uh, they found these two bodies sort of inside a great trunk of an oak tree. And uh, it was a man and a woman, and she still had golden tresses and there was a lead plaque saying, here lies Arthur and his second wife, Guinevere, which was a curious one because no one knew he'd had a, another wife. Yes. Uh, okay. It's a very sort of, maybe it's one of these details that makes it seem even more true. Um, so this is a very convenient find. Yeah, so very convenient. So, so basically, this, uh, it, this happened in 1191, but in the late 13th century, in the reign of Edward I, who, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, was very keen on being kind of overlord in Britain, uh, the greatest king of all of the British kingdoms. Um, he had them ceremonially buried inside Glastonbury Abbey in a beautiful black marble tomb. So they were still tomb. around. The, so the, the, the remains, the, the remains, of yes, were. of whoever these people were. And he, uh, and this was a real statement of, of uh, that Arthur is dead, yeah, <laughs> and that back. he's he can't come back. back. And that uh, he was in some ways sort of, uh, he, he, would, he emulated Arthur in, in, uh, in so, and certainly that's even more true of his grandson, Edward III, who, who would have uh, tournaments and had a round table constructed and, uh, and really wanted to be seen as an heir of Arthur. So, so recreating themselves as the deliverers of the, of the people. So um, that's one way in which the myths were used politically. I think that's very interesting that um, they would have—they were afraid of the Arthur myth. <laughs> yes. They were afraid, oh dear, people. No, it doesn't. Oh, so that 1191—is that Richard the First? Yes, but the, weirdly, it says um, in in the main record of this event, which was written by Jack Gerald of Wales, uh, in his one of his texts that uh, dates to about 1193. Gerald of Wales is a great great read, by the way. A lot of his story, his um texts are available in translation very cheaply he did a journey through Wales and a topography of Ireland where he says he's a travel writer yeah essentially and he's hilarious and he he says (laughs) things like the Irish are very good at music and drink only the finest wine from Poitiers Um, but anyway he he says that um, the monks knew where to dig because of uh, because of a dream that Henry II had had and so he, obviously he dies a few years before 1191, but um, yeah. but perhaps you know I think it's another way in which, which the this, first dad, yeah, yeah. this discovery um, was made to look like a way in legitim- of legitimising the English kings and 
uh, legitimising their political ambitions. So were they still feeling then in that time? Because this is quite a long time since the conquest. They weren't quite rooted and they needed <laughs> well, to Well, I think out. what's beginning to happen is that there is more and more hostility um, in, w- between the English kings and the French kings. Oh, I see. Uh, they've lost la- lands in France and they want them back. And they, it's no longer very helpful to think of the French as family. Um, and so the English kings are perhaps trying to define... Well, they're the Plantagenet, the Norman kings in England, are trying to define themselves more clearly as English... And as heirs of uh, Brutus, essentially. So they they allow the British origin myth to kind of segue smoothly into the story of the English royal line um, and claim kind of overlordship of Britain and also in in sort of uh, killing two birds with one stone, differentiating themselves very clearly from France. Gosh, there's a sort of expediency in using these myths to create a sense of English, British yeah, sort mean, of exceptional. There's a brilliant um, uh, genealogical role, a scroll. I think one of the one of the most the facts that I most enjoyed um, exploring in Storyland was the etymology of the word pedigree. Uh, yes, I read that last night. Pedigree means the foot of the crane. So basically, the the uh, aristocrats and royalty of of um, England in this period would create these long scrolls with with diagrams that were sort of one central stem that kind of forked off into lots of little stems showing the uh, children and siblings of uh, members of the royal line. So we're and a that single fire here yep. just down the, a recreation of this track. And try is, not to fall over. It's really slippery. Yeah, I'll walk on the side. Sure, be careful. To lose you. Um, Come on, oh those bog men. Of, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Of, there's um, a great lever here that says do not touch. Oh, it gosh. Looks like it's sort of. <laughs> you pump out the, the levels. The forces of Avalon. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, Arthur, Arthur will be released. Come by lever. Yeah. And overthrow the current government. <laughs> um, I wonder how he'll deal with it all. Uh, <laughs> probably have we to... will avoid the politics. Yeah, yeah, let's let's. This is no. Although we can't it. avoid the politics, because it's all in your in your in your book. The whole, as we've been saying, this expediency mm. and the creation of this sense of English. Oh, yeah, so I was talking uh, about pedigrees. Yes. Yeah, and and the uh, so the, the, yeah, these diagrams looked like the foot of a, and the leg and foot of a wading bird, and so that these are you know, family trees essentially, and so they were called. De Gru, which means the foot of the crane. Um, and it was there's one such Pédigru in the Bodleian Library. It's called Bodley Rolls 3. But it opens with a series of illustrations running from the story of the Golden Fleece and Jason yeah. all the way through to the story of Brutus. But then what follows goes from Brutus all the way down to Edward I. Right, so they've hitched so their wagon he's, he's li- the... Yeah, he's just saying, you know, <laughs> basically from the great stories of the classical world down to Edward I there's this kind of unbroken continuum and that's all that authority that he is he's claiming this is who do you think you are for Plantagenets yes it's exactly. sort of can who I who do you think you are Jason yeah uh, <laughs> that's yeah yeah Geoffrey of Monmouth was always really disregarded when I studied history as a sort of whole yeah. load of nonsense but obviously he's been reappraised 
Well, it is. He's, he's a great story writer. Yeah, so he, I mean, returning to Gerald of Wales, who was a contemporary historian yeah. of Geoffrey of Monmouth. Gerald of Wales really doesn't like Geoffrey of Monmouth. Oh, and he has, he has this great story where he says, there was a man, and I think it's in Wales, who, who um, whenever he saw anyone lying, he would see kind of demons dancing on that person's yeah. tongue. And... Uh, and he says, and it got particularly bad when he saw a copy of Geoffrey of Monmouth's <laughs> History of the Kings of Britain. It was completely covered in dancing demons. Oh, bitching okay. writers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens even in the 12th century. Yes, but I think it's, it's a case of having to, um, to rethink, you know, to understand the purpose. Geoffrey of Monmouth wasn't setting out with the same aims as a modern historian. It's a... Uh, History is a in the Middle Ages is a source of moral exemplar, good and bad examples of how great men predominantly behave, but also women and his his treatment of female legendary female kings uh, kings <laughs> monarchs is particularly interesting, uh, given that he was at living through the dispute between Stephen and Empress Matilda, who who had the um, you know, claim to the English throne. Yes, yeah, yeah. So. Um, it was a way of sorting out the present and a way of, of um, looking for political precedent and for models of behaviour for people in power. And so I think it, it, set, it, you know, it had a different set of uh, ambitions from, from history now. Yes, I suppose it's not about getting the facts right, it's about, it's about getting your morals right. Yes, and, and also seeing how it ties into a, into a larger cosmological narrative, into a kind of Christian story. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. Just this massive reed bed in the sun. See, if you did become a bog man, <laughs> they'd find your recording equipment. Yeah. I think they'd maybe think it was a sacrifice to the gods of, <laughs> of podcast. They say remains of a croissant found as a sacrificial last meal. Yeah, his last meal. <laughs> he ate something from France. Clearly, relations with the French were good at the time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> At the end of each story, there's a little, a few paragraphs, often a few pages of reflection. And quite often you've been to visit some of the sites, which I love those bits, because I think that's what I like doing, is sort of looking on the map. Yeah. That's the site of the story. Some of those, the hill in Radnishins at Khan Gavath. Yes. It seemed like you had always had quite bad weather. <laughs> yeah, I went to Khan Gavath in Storm Dennis oh. with Will. Um, that was, yeah, my... Very uh, Test, diff- testing, out. yeah. yeah. We, we, we thought we would. Yeah, I thought I was like, oh, I'll take a little video diary when we get up there, and I actually ruined the microphone on my phone. It never worked again. So all future videos were of me mouthing, <laughs> you know, Honestly, inaudibly because of Storm Dennis. Oh yeah, these were places where the stories were actually mentioned in some of the stories. So you're going to see. Yes. Was yes. The one, that one in Radisha, Khan Gavals. Yeah. Was it? That was the poor print of a poor. Yes, so it says in in a text called The Marvels of Britain, uh, which may or may not have been written by somebody called Nennius, um, that... (laughs) There's a lot of that. It's a 9th century history, um, that on top of this hill there is a cairn, and on top of the cairn is a stone which has a poor print in it from Cabal, King Arthur's dog. And this dog is mentioned elsewhere in... um, the Mabinogion, those sort of much later Welsh stories of, uh, which include stories of King Arthur, 
and uh, and it's mentioned in the context of a great hunt that Arthur goes on after a after a sort of legendary boar called Troint and uh, and back it to the sort of the story of the cairn. It says, if this stone is ever removed from the top of the cairn, it returns there within the, you know, the next day. Um, and the this has been identified as Khan Kafalt Kabal. Uh, that's a kind of um, it's got the, the name of the dog still in the name of the hill. Um, so clearly this I just think that's kind of that's amazing yeah. that there's this 9th century text where this this story is, is written and then those were moments of correspondence that I found particularly exciting the same goes with Dinas Emrys where um, it was said the red and white dragons were buried and that were released um, under the instruction of the child Merlin and uh, is, uh, is where in Wales? It's uh, beside Snowdon Right, one of the big peaks. Is it this big? is beautiful. This, the, the lake is so still, just, just the tiniest disturbance on the water. It's like whispering, it's reflecting the golden reeds. That's a perfect description, it really is. Yeah, I love that, and you actually searched on Kong. Yeah, I, I did have a look around Kangafalt for, for the paw print. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they, they, you know, but it wasn't there. I, I couldn't, well, I couldn't you, find it. What was your favourite place that you... That you these, these stories have taken you all over the place Scotland, Wales, Ireland Yeah, I think it has to be Dinas Emrys was just wonderful, so that, that Dinas Emrys means fort of, of Emrys or Ambrosius and Ambrosius is uh, one of the names of King Arthur's uncle he's called Aurelius Ambrosius in the Latin texts and so this, this hill again bears that has borne that name for a very long time and has a very um, has for the whole of that time been associated with um, this sort of Merlin figure. And uh, when we went up there, I knew that you know, the story goes that um, that the child Merlin's been called there by King Vortigern, who was trying. He's an evil king. He's, he's a, a, he's a useless king. Is, is I mean, there's there is some mention of a king called Vortigern, but he gets caricatured in the. You know, I think there are there are the most sparse mentions of him in stone epigraphy and that kind of thing but he um by the 12th century he's this like caricature of a bad king he's yeah. got great yeah, yeah. great you know how not to how not to rule don't be seduced by your pagan saxon Enemies. mercenaries yeah. naked daughter <laughs> and uh, give up your well, faith you know. yeah. for the <laughs> and uh, and betray your kingdom and all of your nobles for the sake of one yeah. night with her you know that kind of thing and uh, and he, but he did, does do all of that, and he uh, the Briton, uh, his his nobles end up being massacred by the Saxons, and he flees to Wales and begins building a tower on this hill, and every night it crumbles to the ground, and he doesn't know why, and he sends his soothsayers say you need to uh, to to stop it from crumbling, you need to spill the blood of a boy with no father, with no human father, and so he sends his scouts out, and they come back with Merlin, who they they hear being teased in Carmarthen as having had having no father so um merlin comes along he's still a child he uh he says it's you don't need to spill my blood to sort out this this crumbling tower your soothsayers don't know anything um and i can prove it and water again says go on then he says well, you've got to dig down under the tower and you'll find a pool and so they do that they find a pool he says now you need to drain the pool and you'll find two dragons so they drain the pool and reveal these two, this one a white and one red dragon, and then the dragons begin fighting, and and that's the when the king says, "What does this mean?" And Merlin says, "This, 
this is what you've done. You've, the, the, the white dragon is the Saxon uh, presence in Britain and it's attacking the Britons, which are the red dragon. And, uh, and he then goes into a long string of crypto-prophetic utterances that sound a little bit like the beginning of that Radio 4 programme, you know, the juggernaut of destiny hits the hedgehog of... Oh, yeah, it was the know. hedgehog rolling apples in Winchester. Yeah, in Winchester and yeah. hiding its apples in Winchester. And, um, and so, yes, yeah, so, so that's the story of On the Summit of Dinas Emerus. And I knew that, yeah, from my reading, that there was going to be some trace of a... It's a heron. <laughs> some trace of... Um, of a pool, and you know, I was really interested. And, and but then I oh, got up yes, there and I couldn't see anything. One. You know, I yeah. was just, I was just on yeah. the top of this this very ordinary hill, um, with uh, I passed two beautiful waterfalls on the way up, which made me think they were just they were roaring like the dragons. You know, I thought that was great, and um, and there were really very narrow granite bridges to go over to get across them, and it was quite hairy. Um, and then when I got to the top of the hill, it was just, you know, the short stubbly grass, some slightly windswept looking trees. And I thought, hmm, I can't see any pool. And I was, I'd gone with my dad and I was saying, it's around here somewhere, I promise. And then suddenly we came to the edge of a hollow, looked down into it and the grass was, you know, four or five inches long and poison green and kind of just drifting like snow and there were great boulders dust around and then right at the bottom this perfect clearly man-made pool uh, very dark with a single foxglove kind of nodding over the edge oh. and the oak trees had sort of ringed this this like um this hollow and they were all covered in lichen and sort of overshadowing it so it was all and it was like so still down there i mean if you've ever been on the top of a hill in snowdonia you know it's not a it's not a still place no <laughs> but it was like this was absolutely protected and oh, wow. and it was it there's a, um, some ruins there i think they're 12th century the the pool itself is the remnants of probably a Roman system um, but from that sort of the Roman period all the way up to the Middle Ages in the time of Geoffrey of Monmouth there seems to have been some kind of activity on this hilltop and you know for at least the last part of that time the story was was in circulation too and so I thought that was particularly exciting to to be on this, to, to be in this place that really felt like it ought to be full of stories, yeah. and was, and was at the t- and was understood to be at the time, and I went and stood in the middle of the pool because I just didn't know what to do with all of that loveliness. Yeah, that's that's one. <laughs> it's very easy to imagine yourself into that story when you're standing on the top of that hill, and that's the that's the enchantment of it. I think. Right, it's just wonderful that these places can be visited. As the chronology, chronology um, develops and, and, and moves forward, you get real people in the stories, real historical yes. figures, and I find that quite interesting. They have been woven. I, I know, obviously, we talked about Edward the first wanting to link back to Jason mm-hmm. and the Ark, uh, Jason and, and Brutus, but actually, these people become part of some. Some of these, of William the Conqueror yep. and others, become figures in these great mythical stories yes I mean William the Conqueror becomes very involved in the resurrection of Gog Magog the giant who was killed off at the very beginning and um, I don't I don't want to give it all away because I think there's there's a sort of delight in letting and yeah. uh, approaching the end of the story without too many spoilers but um, but that's all set around Castel Dennis Bran uh, near uh, Clangochlan 
and um, and you know when when Gog Magog comes back, he sets up a kind of demonic town around that place, which is full of you know, he sets up like a it's like a fair, and travellers are lured to it, and and um, and when we visited, it was just it was one of those days um, where the rain was coming and going and uh, we happened to arrive just at a moment so you know a gap in the rainy rainy patches and uh but the air was still so wet it was like almost slight still slightly raining but you could barely feel it and so it just meant there were rainbows <laughs> like we walked up the castellanus brand yeah it's, 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 it's sort of it's almost like glastonbury tour just you know this lonely hill um, surrounded by the hills around are more sort of low and, and like ridges rather than hills and uh, but still kind of massive and uh, and in the valleys there were these sort of rainbows stretching across and I really felt like we could <laughs> on the, it could be a trap yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> made to look you know like the, the child catcher you know like <laughs> come in here all will be well um, I've talked so much about Geoffrey of Monmouth, and I do want to say there's also, you know, the uh, the Scottish origin myth uh, drawn together. Well, actually, we can we can talk about that. Um, you know, that was really that coalesced um, in response to the English claims to overlordship of Scotland, so and this it was is Edward kind of, the first again. Yeah, and Edward the first, and Edward the third, oh, yeah. um, trying to. Who's Edwards? Yeah, I know. They're the worst, um, <laughs> and. Um, trying to demonstrate their, that their mythic origins separated them from the English and they, they draw on the Irish stories um, of uh, tribes migrating from uh, Scythia and Greece and, um, and so their, their story is that the daughter of King Ramesses II, the pharaoh uh, of the Bible, of, of the story of Moses, um, fled Egypt after the plagues with a Greek prince called Gaethalos, who had been so hot-headed he was exiled from his father's court. He's certainly quite a nice character, Gaethalos. Yeah. Just, um, classic sort of... Misunderstood, you yeah, bad yeah. boy. Um, and um, so he and Scott end up in, in Spain, uh, in a town that is now Acarona, uh, which has got a, a tower in it called Hercules Tower, but in the in the Scottish Chronicon, the Scottish story of uh, of the regnal origins of the Scots, uh, it says this tower was built by Gaethalos, and their son Hibber sets out for the island that will become Hibernia, then oh, Ireland, gosh, okay. uh, and it, he gives I- Iberia, the Iberian Sea, and Hibernia his name, and of course the Scots become, are named after. Uh, the Scotty is the name for the Irish in, in medieval uh, stories. What's this? A water rail. Oh, wonderful. Pretty sure that's a water rail. It's like a squealing pig. <laughs> I haven't heard one of those for absolute ages. Well, what we were talking about before I went off on a Scottish tangent <laughs> was um, that Geoffrey of Monmouth says that he builds his his history of Britain from a very ancient book in the British tongue and that he's basically translating it that's what he claims shameless really (laughs) (laughs) yeah and uh, but from from reading his text in in and and alongside at the earlier histories of Britain it seems clear that it's a patchwork 
uh, with with the gaps filled in and I have done nowhere near I imagine as much uh, fabrication as Jeffrey of Monmouth did um, but what I did feel very um, liberated about doing was was retelling in such a way as would hopefully capture the imaginations of a con- my contemporary readership which yeah. is certainly what he did it's quite like your lovely illustration so um I don't think you mentioned it yet, but you've illustrated it yourself with lino cuts. Mm-hmm. Um... So it began, um, it began with lino cuts, really. I was finishing my PhD, I'd moved to Somerset, so I really wanted to stay, and, uh, and I was procrastinating. Um, one of with... life's great skills, I find. Yes, yeah. and it was I never get around to it, You're too busy so procrastinating, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I've taken up... Lino cut. I'd started working with Chris Pig at the Black Pig Printmaking Studio, um, and I knew that I wanted to have a go illustrating Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, um, and I was ha- was very taken with uh, Chris Pig's style, which uses large uh, areas of black, and uh, and I thought this is such a good way of illustrating myth because there's so much unsaid, there's so much mystery. And this medium, which uses only... You kind of draw in light and you can have so much implied in the shadows. So I I started with um, Diana sending Brutus to Albion, which ended up as the cover of Storyland. And I did the death of Gog Magog. So that's the giant being cast into the sea. Much more open here. This is the kind of big legumes of shepherd. It's amazing. And the light in the distance... Is, is almost too bright to look at yeah, yeah, coming off the water and I love the way the reed tops are all kind of silver they're lovely aren't they they're sort of soft and... I think they, they, they're very um, changeable reeds I was, I was standing by a reed bed the other day in the wind and they become quite nightmarish because their heads they shake their hair in all the same direction you know mm. and, uh, and they're making that whispering sort of Sort of more like praying in tongues. It's kind of yeah, yeah. I sort of like almost couldn't yeah. yeah look at it too long. It was amazing. But here they're all peaceful. They're benevolent again. Yeah, it's a very benevolent day. <laughs> this would be a very very creepy dark place when it's when the, when the it weather closes in. What you'd want to do is cycle down this path really fast in the dark. <laughs> I think that would be that would be an experience. I have cycled along here in the day. Well, you'd probably hear the sound of old trains steaming through this is, <laughs> yeah. this is the old train route oh. to the coast wow. from Glastonbury well we're getting almost the end of our walk but um, we've been talking about you making things Yes. And you've made a scarf for the podcast, a pod scarf a scarf cast yeah. <laughs> well, I had, it's a work of beauty I had such ambitions Fergus <laughs> Am I allowed to admit to how incredibly well, small it is? You can say whatever you like on audio, but it's, no. yeah, all right, let's be honest. I had this great ambition to knit a black and white scarf that would look like my illustrations and, uh, and wear it for the podcast and make a joke out of the fact that probably no one could see it unless they had second sight. And, uh, and there we go. I, I, I gave it hours and hours of my time uh, and have managed about, well, what do you think? 15 inches? Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, I think you could probably put it on, on the top of one's head. We'll, right, we'll go around Rosa May. Yeah. baby who yes. listens to be able to hear. A snood. Yeah. Um, well, I think we it's go. just lovely that you've made a, you've made a scarf. For, uh, but I will carry on. It's a first. I think it's a... 
Yeah, I, I just. It's black. Know, I should tell Ruth. It's Ruth, black, Ruth. yeah, and it's, uh, it's made with a, with a very nice wool. And I, just, I just think there's something very fun about knitting a scarf in winter. It's just a big rectangle, well, so you don't really have to concentrate. It's also then, a day for okay. scarves. It's beautiful, but it is chilly. I'm, wearing, I'm actually wearing one, but. Uh, it is, but we've been so lucky with this amazing blue sky and the light on the water and the reeds and the birds and yeah. the chiff chaff that decided to stay just for us for before us, heading off extra, to Africa. For an extra bit of singing, that's incredible. That's the latest I've ever heard one. Thank you, Amy. It's so, so inspiring to hear your tales oh, and wonderful to too. meet you and your little baba. Well, Storyland is available in the shops now, isn't it? As, it a, as is. a printed book and an audio book. But yes, and of course the printed book's got pictures, so yeah. you, know, you should definitely get both. I think the. Uh, and who's the publisher? Quercus, River Run. River Run's the imprint, River. and uh, the publisher is Quercus. Of course, that's perfect for a countryside podcast. Yes, um, the oak tree, yeah. Indeed. Lovely. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! So that was an absolutely lovely day out on the sunset levels, a truly golden day and a really special autumn day. Really good to talk to Amy about her book and to hear some of her incredible stories. And it was also lovely to hear... Amy's daughter, Rosa May, with uh, well-timed interjections all the way through. And so thanks to Amy. Good luck with your book. And talking about well-timed interjections, <laughs> I am in the studio just with Hannah this week. Hi. Hi, friend. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very buoyed up by having a really nice day out in, in a beautiful part of the world and just learning so much about the history of the, these sort of crazy isles that we live in. You've listened to it. Did you did you did it sort of change your views of Well she's just exceptionally talented, isn't she? She just knows so much. I was kind of in awe of her being able to get her head around all these different timescales and different things happening in different places all across the country and linking those things all together to create something that feels sort of cohesive. And yeah. also then she, that she illustrated it herself. Like it's amazing. Yeah, and, and the illustrations are fantastic. They're so nice. Cuts. Well worth buying the book for those. But also, I agree with you. I, I was really impressed by just, I mean, just the breadth of research that needs to go into a book like that and the confidence that you then have to retell these stories. Well, yeah, hats off. Plus, we, we just had fun walking around and I think we could have... I mean, I had to cut, edit that down 
so much. There were so many other things. We saw loads of wildlife. And I think we might have to go back sometime and uh, and do another one, just just recording all the all the crazy sounds and the interesting things. But I didn't want to lose any of Amy's stories. So it was a bit of a tight edit. You must come down to the Somerset levels because dear Jack, who isn't here with us today, enjoyed our bitten journey down there earlier in the year. I was really pleased to get the sound of a water rail squealing, which I think is a first for the for the podcast. We'll have to plan another trip down there for next season. Absolutely. We've got the whole of 2022 to fill with glorious podcasts celebrating the countryside. So how's your wild week been? Have you been working hard? I know all people who work in magazines are extremely busy in the run-up to Christmas. Have you seen the outdoors at all? I have. I've come back to Wales for a week um, to enjoy the outdoors a bit. And everything has changed so much since I've been away. The skies have kind of opened up. There are no more leaves on the trees. Everything's feeling a lot brighter and cleaner, especially because we've had quite dry weather here. I know it hasn't been dry everywhere, but it's it's amazing how much things have changed. We're definitely yeah. in winter now. Yes, yes. And we were recording late November, early December, and it's just sort of, it's bitterly cold. I mean, as I can see, I'm looking out of my window now. It's a glorious winter sunset. Have you, are you, I mean, you're in Wales as well. Have you got the same sunset or is yours different? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the same. It's pretty golden. But something amazing happened yesterday, again, around this sort of time. I stood up and I looked out the window and for some reason, the houses that I could see ahead of me were pink. What's going on? And I went to the other side of the house, which is the opposite direction from where the sun sets and the sky, cloudy sky, was pink, just completely pink, a solid block of pink, like someone had just painted it. It was incredible. And you couldn't actually see the sunset at all, but something was happening with the light reflecting it was, yeah, it was amazing. Like the the scariest looking thunderstorm you've ever seen, although that wasn't actually what happened, but completely unreal and beautiful. So you get these sort of Armageddon skies occasionally, don't you? Yeah, that's just so, possibly near the sea. It's quite a, did that mm, have an effect that. on it? Some magic, nature magic. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. I'm glad you're getting out and seeing a bit of, bit of the world rather than being stuck at your desk all the time. <laughs> and hopefully in 2022, we will, get out and do some some more adventures as a team because this is our last episode in the Histories and Mysteries season. Boo. I'm very sad to bring, bring to an end. But more on that in a minute. I do have a little story. You know, we talked last week, we talked about um, saying hello to strangers yes. on walks. Something happened to me this week. No. I was out walking the dog down a little lane, down to the ch- little wonderful little churchyard. And I always see dog walkers on this lane. And I said hello to this very jolly looking couple and their dog. And when I said hello, the, the man said to me, are you Fergus Collins? And I said, well, I am. And he said, <laughs> I've just listened to a podcast and it's the same voice. And that was really amazing. So he was, I was a bit overwhelmed. And uh, so we had a chat. Uh, his name is Ian and his partner's Debs and their dog was called Dylan. Dill. So hello, <laughs> hello to you guys, and really nice to meet you. And um, I look out for you again. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, thank you. So you really sweet. made my day. <laughs> so saying hello to strangers on walks is is definitely always a cheery hello. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool. 
In fact, we know there are many people out there listening because we do get reviews. <laughs> We've got a couple. Now, we don't have Jack here today, tonight, to do the rummaging and the post bag. And now he, he's normally our chief. He's got the longest arms. <laughs> I'm probably not going to do his sound effects. No, he's excellent at that. Would you, would you like to? Well, there's two of them. So if you do one, I'll do one. Yes. It's from Capybara 100. And they start with, if you love nature and storytelling, listen in, dot, dot, dot. Consistently brilliant articles from wildlife to folklore delivered by a presenting team which brings stories to life. I love what you do. Thanks to you and to the guests for their time and effort creating such wonderful pieces. I often start my working day listening to the pod while greenkeeping on a Cornish Lynx golf course, watching out for my wildlife as I go but listening to the tales of witches' pools as I mow. Oh, that's poetry. That's so really sweet. delightful. Gosh, I love five, it. five stars as well. That's amazing. Well, thank you, Capybara 100. Yeah, we like, we really like those reviews. It's so nice to like to have a mental image of what people are doing while they're listening to us. Yeah, mowing. Like I'm mow- thinking of you now, like mowing along. Mowing it's really a golf lovely. course. <laughs> yeah, and I like to, to or he or she talking about their wildlife. I love that. You get that sense of ownership of your local wildlife. I'm just kind of slightly distracted because the sky is going even more red and golden. And, I've got uh, pink streaks appearing. Yeah. Okay, because what I'm looking is probably over where you are in Gower, because I'm <laughs> further east in Wales. So, so I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a two star review, and it's not all bad. Okay, it's not all bad. Okay. Um, I'm, I didn't like seeing this, but it actually starts with a brilliant podcast. Okay, so that's good. Not a two star podcast. Yeah, ruined for me <laughs> by the choice of sponsors. So look, you know. There are adverts. I think they're referring to adverts at the beginning, middle and end of some of our longer podcasts. And that's, uh, I'm afraid, this is from Trout in Boots, which is a... You know, I, I, love, I love that. I <laughs> Again, that five, a lovely mental image. Yeah, I think five stars. The, is that a then. trout wearing boots or are you having trouts inside your boots? I think it's like puss in boots, so trout okay. in boots. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking. I, I can't... Where, hmm. Are they on, like, like, the tail fin or the side fin? I think the side fins, like wearing them like gloves. Mm. And then I don't know how a trout (laughs) motors in boots, but there we go. It's a, a, you've got us thinking, trout in boots. Mm, I like it. The podcasts are free to listen to. um, And it's through advertising that we gain some revenue that allows us to do this. Not every advert will be perfect for every listener. But we do try our best. So thanks, Trout and Boots, for that. This is the last episode of our Histories and Mysteries season. 18 episodes. We do have a few specials coming up. One next week, totally unmissable, which is we've got a completely exclusive interview with the great nature writer, wordsmith and just wanderer of the wild, Rob McFarlane. He he will be coming to talk about his great collaboration with singers songwriters lost spells and this is part two of this he's been doing a long campaign about celebrating nature through words music lost words lost spells this is to highlight to showcase his work with lost spells too and we're going to include some of the music it's absolutely i was going to explete there it's magical and um totally unmissable then after that i think we'll do a christmas special won't we 
yeah, mince pies, hats, and just kind of chat about what the fun stuff and hopefully have a bit of a laugh in the studio before we all head off for our own, our own Christmases. So for now, um, Hannah, thank you so much. Always good to see your smiley face and have thank your you help, for me. help making the podcast. Jack, we miss you, but um, come back next next week. So please join us again next week for more fun. But for now, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.